The festival of Sukkot, of Sukkot, is swiftly upcoming. There's, there's no break. There's no rest for the weary. We have Rosh Hashanah, two days of Rosh Hashanah. Then we have, of course, the days of repentance. And we have Yom Kippur. And five days later, we have the festival of Sukkot, of Sukkot, which is a seven-day festival, but it's appendaged with, in the diaspora, it's two more days, Shemini Atzeres and Simchas Torah. Of course, our brethren in the land of Israel have only one day. They have eight days in total. We have nine. And today I want to focus on one element of these days, namely the element of joy. The festival of Sukkot is called the time of joy. Zman Simchasin, the time of our joy. Now, the truth is, every festival has its moniker, Shavuos. That's the Zman Matan Torah saying, the time of, our, of the giving of the Torah. And that makes a lot of sense. On that day, we got the Torah. And therefore, if we're going to assign a moniker to the day, it's going to be the time that we got the Torah, that the Torah was given. Of course, Pesach, Passover, that marks the Exodus, when we were liberated. And therefore, it is quite appropriate for for Pesach to be called Zman Cherusein, the time of our liberation. And on Rosh Hashanah, well, we blow the shofar. It's a Yom Teruah, the day of the shofar blowing. And Yom Kippur literally means the day of atonement. So all these festivals have nicknames, have days, or have descriptions that are very much associated with the central theme of the festival. Sukkot, Sukkot, it's called Zman Simchasin, the time of our joy. And it's not immediately evident to us what is the association between the festival, between Sukkot, and joy and Simcha. Now, it is true that there is a mitzvah to be joyous on the festival. But that mitzvah applies not just to the festival of Sukkot, of Sukkot, but also to Shavuos, also to Pesach, to Passover. There is no difference in the mitzvah, in the requirement to be joyous on this festival versus any other festival. So what exactly is this joy that's featured, that's so present? That's the name, the description of Sukkot of the festival of Sukkot. Now, if you look at the mitzvos that are associated with this festival, of course, we have the requirement to take the four species, to take the lulav and the esrog, the four species, and to shake them. And the way that mitzvah is described in the Torah, this is in Vayikra, Leviticus chapter 23, verse 40. It describes all the various species that we must take. So the Torah tells us we take it one day. We actually take it for seven. The verse says we should be joyous. Right after it tells us to fulfill the mitzvah of lulav, it tells us that we should be joyous. The sentiment of these four species that we're supposed to take and we're supposed to shake is joy. And that's why in in the prayer service, the point at which we take the lulav and shake it, it's the halal, which is the part of the prayer that is supposed to be about joy. 
So we see a lot of associations with joy in this festival, but we don't exactly see how it all connects. Where is the root, so to speak, of the joy of this festival of circus? Now, I want to read to you some statements in the Rambam, very famous, very iconic statements in the Rambam, where he describes another element that was featured in the temple on this festival. And it is a description of unrestrained, unbridled, exuberant joy. The Rambam, at the, law, at the end of the laws of Lulav, the end of the laws of, of Sukkis, he tells us, even though there is a requirement on all the festivals to be joyous, nevertheless, Bechaga Sukkos, on the festival of Sukkos, in the temple, there was extra joy. And then he proceeds to describe what the joy in the temple looked like. Listen to this. And how was this joy celebrated? How was this joy manifested? How did they exhibit joy, this heightened level of joy in the temple? And then he tells us like this. The day before the festival, they would prepare the temple. And they would make room for for the separation of the men and the women. The women would go on top, onto the balcony, and the men would be in the bottom. So that way the men and the women would not intermix. So the first thing he tells us is that the setup in the Temple for the Joy. Of course, you know, for modern society, this notion of separation of the sexes, that is not, you know, the first thing you would tell us about a joy experience. But of course, our joy is very different than their joy. Our joy is sacrosanct and there cannot be any room for levity or frivolity. So the men and women are separated. And then he tells us that there were enormous candelabra, golden candelabra were erected in Jerusalem. And each one of these candelabra had four enormous lamps. And there were four ladders and four young kohan and young priests would climb up the ladder and pour all the oil into each one of the respective basins, the respective lamps. And then they would take wicks, and the wicks were made out of the pants, the trousers, of Kohanim. Of course, in the temple, the Kohanim wore a special getup, the various different garments. And when the pants got tattered, and they got worn out, they would put them aside and would, would keep it in storage until the festival of Sukkot. And then they would take the fabric and spin it into large wicks that they would put in those four lamps on top of these massive golden candelabra. By the way, this is where the the phrase pants on fire comes from. Okay, that's just a joke. These, These candelabra would illuminate all of Jerusalem, the Misha tells us. There wasn't a single courtyard in old Jerusalem that was not illuminated for the Knights of Sukkot. And right away at the very beginning of the festival, after one day of the festival, they would start being joyous. And every day, all the days, the intermediate days of the festival, right after the 
afternoon sacrifice, so as it's getting approaching towards evening, they would be joyous the entire night until the morning. So he's just telling us that they were joyous, but what did they do? This is what they did. They had a flute, and the flute would be playing. Someone would play the flute, and someone would be playing the harp, and someone would be playing the drums, and every person who knew how to play an instrument would play music. And if you didn't know how to play music with an instrument, you would play with your mouth. And they would dance, and they would clap, and they would whistle, and they would jump. Everyone would exhibit their joy with the music in the way that they know how to do. And they would sing songs of praise. And this is what they did for the entire festival. From night, nightfall, until morning. They would dance and sing and praise and play music non-stop for four days, maybe five days. This does not override Shabbos, the Mishnah tells us. But this is the joy, or this is the expression of joy that was featured in the temple. And then the Ramam quotes the Mishnah that this was not open for everyone. If you were an ignoramus and you just show up to the temple on the festival and you want to play your uh, your clarinet, they wouldn't allow you. This was only for the giants of the nation. The greatest sages, the heads of the yeshiva, the members of the Sanhedrin, the pious ones, the elders, the people of deeds, the people that were substantial contributors towards the nation. They were the ones who were dancing, who were singing, who were playing in the temple during the festival of Sukkot. And everyone else, they would come to watch and to listen. Now the Talmud actually tells us the words of their song, or one of the songs. Some of them would sing like this. The ones who were righteous and pious and people of tremendous deeds, who were righteous from the beginning of their life to the end of their life. They would say, praiseworthy is our youth, because our youth is consistent with our older years, meaning they were righteous from the beginning until the present time. And those were the pristinely righteous and how they sang. And there was another group, and these were the people that were not pristinely righteous their whole life, but they were penitents. They had repented. And they would sing a different song, and they would sing the words of their song were, Praiseworthy is our older years, for that atoned for our younger years. And both of these cohorts, both groups, would say, Praiseworthy is he who never sinned. But whoever did sin, return, repent, and you will be forgiven. The Talmud has other citations that were said. The declarations of Hillel, Hillel, Hillel the Elder. He participated in this for a whole week. And the Talmud records what he would say. Imani Khan Khan. If I am here, everything is here, which Rashi has his interpretation, other interpretations as to what exactly he meant. Rashi tells us he's referring to 
God, if God is in the temple, then everyone will come. Otherwise, if God removes himself from the temple, it's an empty shell. The Talmud offers some other things that Hill would say. And there were other incredible experiences. It tells us of the feats and the acrobatic accomplishments of the Nasi, of the president of the nation, Rabban Shimon ben He knew how to juggle. And he would take eight torches of fire and would juggle them in the air that none of them dropped and none of them touched, which is pretty impressive. The joke is that uh, I, I sometimes feel, you know, working here, that I'm juggling eight torches. Okay, another joke. And then it tells us that he would bow in the temple. Of course, he bowed before God. And he was able to bow in a way that no one else could match. He would bow while balancing on his thumbs. Another incredible accomplishment, a feat of prowess. And this happened nonstop for the entire circus. The entire intermediate days, that is. And the Mishnah testifies. There was unparalleled joy in the temple. And if you never experienced this, you never saw real joy in your life. If you did not experience what's called Simchas Beis HaShoeva, the, the joy of the drawing, you never saw real joy in your life. And of course, everyone's wondering, wait a minute. If they're doing this the whole night, when they sleep, they must have slept the entire day, right? Right? No, the Talmud says no. The Talmud records what they would do. Talmud says that for the duration of the days, so it's it's four days, maybe five days, they never slept. The first hour of the day, well, that's when they brought the first sacrifice, the, the daily Tamid offering in the temple. And everyone participated in that. And then they went to pray. And then they went to witness the Musaf sacrifice. And then they prayed Musaf. And then they went to study. These are not the ignoramuses. These aren't the lay people. These are the sages. What do they do? They study. And they study the whole day. And then it was time to eat. And they went to eat. And then it was time to pray the afternoon prayer. And then it was time to go participate and witness the afternoon Tamid sacrifice. And from then on, afterwards, they went to this celebration, Simchas Beisheshueva, the joy of the drawing. And they did that the whole night until they got to the morning and they started the cycle again. And then Tal says, wait a minute, what about sleep? We have a tradition, you cannot go more than three days without sleep. And here we have four days, five days, at most, of no sleep. And the Talmud tells us, they didn't really sleep, but when they were dancing, sometimes they would kind of lean their head on the shoulder of the person next to them, and they would kind of doze off as they were dancing. This happened in the temple every single year. And this is this joy that the Ramam tells us. Yes, there's a mitzvah to be joyous on all the festivals, but only on the festival of Sukkot 
to have this incredible, exuberant celebration of joy, this convention of joy, this festival, quite literally, of joy for the duration of the intermediate days of Sukkot. And the, the Talmud tells us that this experience was life-changing. And the reason why it's called the celebration of the drawing, like you're drawing something out of a, out of a well, it's because from this experience, they would draw Ruach HaKodesh, which is a level of prophecy. It's almost like there was prophecy there, but it was hidden. It was, it was, it was deep in the ground. And they would put down their pail and drop this level, this lower level of, of prophecy. And everyone who participated in this emerged a changed person from then on out. And the Talmud tells us the prophet Jonah, of course, we, we know Jonah. We just read the story of Jonah on Yom Kippur. Jonah became a prophet. How did he become a prophet? When did it start? He went to the temple and he participated in the Simchas Beis HaShoeva, in this, this celebration, this joy of the drawing of the water and the drawing of the prophecy. And from then on, he became a prophet. Again, we're seeing a lot of joy and a very, a very exuberant version of joy on this festival. And of course, today we don't have a temple. And we don't have this experience of, of the juggling and the music and the singing and the dancing and the lights, the lamps, the whole night. And then starting again, the, the, the day, a full day, a packed day. And then once the nighttime comes, you take a little nap. Uh, you know, you doze off a little bit on, on, on your neighbor's uh, shoulder. We, we, we don't even have the stamina to even think about that. What would that be? Eight hours, ten hours of dancing and singing after not sleeping the whole day and then doing it again and again and again. Of course, it's, it's distant for us. The, the, the whole concept is distant from us. But nevertheless, when we talk about this festival, it's still called Zman Simchaseinu, the time of our joy. And we still have the mitzvah, of course, on all festivals, but especially on Sukkot. We have the mitzvah to be joyous. And the commentaries tell us when the verse in Devarim, chapter 16, tells us on the festivals, and particularly on Sukkot, you should be exclusively joyous. The commentaries tell us this is not only a commandment to be joyous, it's a promise. If you are joyous, you will be exclusively joyous. If someone wants to be happy and joyous, the commentaries tell us, what is the secret to be joyous the whole year? If you're joyous on this festival, you will be joyous the entire year. And yes, even today, in every Jewish community, there is a mini version of the Simchas Beis HaShoeva. In Houston, we have one, you know, it's an hour, it's two hours, dancing, singing, some, some food, some music. It's not the whole night, but it's not nothing. But this should be sufficient evidence for us to realize that joy is central to this festival. 
And it's not exactly clear where the joy comes from. Where does this joy stem from? What are the roots of the joy of these days? And I think if we understand, again, that this is the description, this is the moniker, the circus, this festival, Zman Simchasinu, the time of our joy. It is to circus what liberation is to Pesach and what receiving of the Torah is to Shavuos. It gets to the actual core of what the festival is all about. And it's not clear how exactly this festival is associated with joy. And I think there are a lot of ideas. And today, I will share with you seven ideas. Why? Why seven? Because there are seven days of the festival of Sukkot. And we figured, you know, one, one idea per day that I think will enhance our festival and, of course, our joy, not just in the festival, but throughout the year. I want to start with an amazing idea featured in the Sefer HaChinuch. Sefer HaChinuch is a medieval book written, we don't really know who wrote it. We know his name, but we don't necessarily know who he is. But what he does in his book is he goes through the 630 mitzvahs. And he gives a little snapshot of each mitzvah. And also he offers a rationale, a justification. What is the reason behind it? And in mitzvah number 488, he's talking about the mitzvah to be joyous on festivals. It's one of the 630 mitzvahs. And he offers a very interesting and counterintuitive rationale for this mitzvah. Why did the Almighty command us to be joyous in the festivals? So he says, every person naturally needs periods of joy. Just as a person needs food at regular intervals and needs to rest and relax and to sleep at regular intervals, of course, you could go a few minutes without breathing, not recommended, but you need oxygen at, you know, very regular intervals. And you need food also at regular intervals, but maybe not as much. Water you need. You need to sleep. You need to experience joy. It's not a luxury. It's not optional. It's necessary. It's physiologically imperative to have joy. And the Almighty, in His benevolence, in His love, He wanted to do us a favor. He wanted to, He wanted to bestow something beneficial upon us. And He says, listen, as a human, you need to experience joy. Why don't we make it a mitzvah? And that way, when you will experience joy, it will be a mitzvah. And therefore, or through that process, all of our deeds can be mitzvahs. Just as, you know, we have, everyone needs to eat, but we make a blessing before we eat. And now we have elevated, we have transformed that, what what could have been an ordinary human activity, now it's a mitzvah. And joy, he tells us, it's not a luxury, it's a necessity, it's a basic human need, like food, like rest, like sleep. 
And God, in his benevolence, he made it a mitzvah. And then he adds, it's also tremendously beneficial because now our joy is connected with God. And it's connected with the festivals. And that will ensure that because our joy is targeted and it's very much associated with God and his miracles that he did for us, that will keep us on track. We'll become emotionally connected with God. And that will ensure that we won't drift too far away. If our connection with the Almighty is only rational, it's in our our mind and it's logical, cold, crystal logic, just pure reason, we're not fully connected. And the Almighty, in his benevolence, he said, I want you to experience joy with God as well. And that will, will ensure that you'll be more associated and connected with the Almighty. And that, of course, is to your great benefit. This is the first idea. And it's, it's kind of almost external to the festival. Maybe there's nothing special about, you know, circus or all the festivals per se, but there is a need to be joyous. And it's not a luxury. It's a necessity. And the Almighty made it a mitzvah and he connected it with these festivals. And that will help us to be more emotionally bound to the Almighty. Idea number one. Okay, let's get to idea number two. On the festival of Sukkot, we, of course, sit in a sukkah. Well, what's a sukkah? It's a temporary dwelling place. It's a hut with three, at least three walls and a roof that it's not much of a roof. In fact, it has to be porous. If rain doesn't get through, it's not kosher. And we sit in a sukkah. Why? To remember the miracles. And to remember that the money made us sit in a sukkah during the Exodus or after the Exodus. Now, what is the sukkah? So Rashi tells us, the commentaries talk about it. It is the clouds of glory. The Jewish people, after the Exodus, we were enveloped by clouds. And these clouds were not ordinary clouds. We don't have any clouds that are like them at all. There were spiritual clouds with miraculous properties. The Talmud tells us that our nation merited three miracles, one for each one of this illustrious family, one from Moshe, one from Aaron, and one from the older sister Miriam. In the merit of Miriam, we had the water. And when she died thus, the water went away. In the merit of Moshe, we had the manna. And when he died, the manna ceased. And the clouds of glory, they were in the merit of Aaron. And you walk outside, you'll see some clouds. But those are not clouds of glory. First of all, the clouds, it wasn't just one, it was seven. One below them, one above them, 
and one in all four directions. And then there was the scout cloud. And that traveled ahead of them. And it made the topography uniform. It made the, it lowered the mounds and the hills and filled in the dips and the valleys. So that way the, the nation has a, a smooth track. And if there were snakes or scorpions, it killed them. It kind of paved the way for the nation. And these clouds had other miraculous properties. For 40 years, the nation didn't have to do any laundry. They would take their, their clothing and they would put it into the cloud. And the cloud would clean it and would iron it and prepare it for use. And these clouds were an ever-present feature of the nation for 40 years. It cocooned them. It gave them climate control. For 40 years, they didn't really interact with the sun and the moon as markers of day and night. When the clouds were whitish, they knew it was daytime. When they reddened, they knew it was nighttime. They were isolated. They were completely enveloped by these clouds and almost removed from the world around them. And we have a festival, and we sit in a sukkah, and that's supposed to be emblematic of these clouds of glory. But wait a minute. We have a lot of miracles that we benefited from over the course of those 40 years in the wilderness. The manna! Isn't that a great miracle? For 40 years to eat manna? The water, what's more imperative, what's more necessary than water? We don't have mitzvah to remember that. So we have no mitzvah to remember the manna. There's no mitzvah in any festival that invokes the manna or the well. And they were pretty significant miracles, everyone would agree. So why... Why specifically the sukkah and the clouds of glory? And there's a famous answer to this question. Food is necessary. You don't have it, you're dead. Water, that too, you're in the, you're in the wilderness. If you don't have it, you're dead. God, so to speak, was obligated to provide us food and water. But shelter, we could have used our own tents. We could have been a bit uncomfortable. We didn't have to have all these benefits to clear away all the dangers, to cocoon us in these magical clouds. So why did the Almighty do it? He did it because he loves us. He wasn't bound. He wasn't obligated to do it. He did it solely out of love. We sit in the sukkah. For seven days, we leave our permanent home. We move into the sukkah. Why? To remember the clouds of glory. And to remember specifically the fact that the Almighty loves us. 
The sukkah is a sign of divine love. And if you realize that the Almighty loves you, and even the things that he's not, so to speak, obligated to do for you, he wants to do for you just because he really, really cares for you and wants you to be comfortable and wants you to be in the best circumstance. If you realize that, if you really consider that, that will evoke tremendous joy. So we sit in the sukkah, and we remember the clouds of glory, and we think about what that means, and what the body is displaying, so to speak, with that, that will give us a tremendous feeling of joy. So maybe that's the root of the joy of this festival. And here's at the number three. Circus comes a mere five days after Yom Kippur. And that's not a coincidence. On Yom Kippur, we're cleansed. It's an amazing thing. The verse tells us, Leviticus, Vayikra, 1630. And we mention this constantly in the prayers. On this day, God will atone for you. He'll cleanse you. He'll purify you from all your sins. Close to God, before God, you shall purify yourself. All of your sins are expunged. Imagine you're facing trial and the charges are severe and you're guilty. You're guilty. It's a 30-year sentence. It's a 50-year sentence. It's a life sentence. It's a capital crime. But you repent. And the verdict comes back full acquittal on all charges. Is there any joy that can match that joy? How can there be anything but dancing on tables in the aftermath of Yom Kippur? And thus we have a festival. And what's the name of the festival? It's the time of joy because this is the time. There's nothing, there's no other emotion we could possibly have if we realize what we just went, went through. There's exuberant joy and there's nothing but joy. And let's take this a bit further. A little bit of a deep idea, and this is an advancement to idea number three, idea number four. The sukkah corresponds to the clouds of glory. When did the clouds of glory begin? Well, the verse tells us it began with the Exodus. The Exodus does not happen in this time of the year. It happens Pesach time. (laughs) There's no time of the year that's further away from the inception, from the commencement of the clouds of glory. So why do we mark the festival and the sitting in the sukkah and remembering the clouds of glory now? It's a very famous question. And it's a very famous answer, courtesy of the Gona Vilna. Indeed, the nation received the clouds of glory right after the Exodus. When they went to Sinai, they had the clouds of glory. But then something happened. The nation sinned, golden calf. 
And those clouds of glory went away. They were rendered undeserving of the clouds of glory. And then the Almighty forgave them. And on Yom Kippur, Moshe returned with a second set of tablets. And the following day, there was the instruction to start collecting the materials for the tabernacle. That's day 11 of Tishrei, if you're counting. And for two days, the nation gave donations. Days 12 and 13. And on day 14, there were so many donations, there had to be an announcement to stop, to cease the donations. And the following day, they started building. Thus, on day 15 of the month of Tishrei, that's when the building of the tabernacle commenced. And when the building of the tabernacle was initiated, those clouds that had disappeared with the sin of the golden calf, they reappeared. And thus, this day, the first day of Sukkot of Sukkot, that's the first day of the clouds of glory, after they reappeared, after the nation was forgiven for the sin of the golden calf. So this is the point over here. The original clouds appeared Pesach time. And on Pesach, we don't sit in a sukkah. We don't celebrate, we don't mark the clouds of glory on Pesach. Only when they were restored, after the nation repented, after Yom Kippur, after the beginning of the tabernacle was undertaken, only then do we mark the clouds of glory with sitting in the sukkah. So, of course, this reinforces the concept the Yom Kippur is connected with Sukkot. Yom Kippur, we have the atonement, the nation's forgiven, and then we have this process of preparing for the building of the tabernacle, which brought back the clouds of glory, which is what we're sitting in, in our sukkah. And the clouds that we celebrate are not the initial clouds, but the clouds that we got back after we lost them. And there's a very deep point over here. The nation had clouds. We left Egypt and we had clouds. Unbelievable. And then we lost them. And then we get clouds back again. And now we celebrate. What is the difference between clouds 1.0 and clouds 2.0. The difference is the tabernacle. That is a portable Sinai. The Jewish nation reached the absolute apex of the human experience with the Sinai revelation. At Sinai, the nation experiences prophecy. It's the highest level of achievement. But what happens 40 days later? They sin. What happened to the Sinai? 
What happened to that experience? What happened to the closeness that was forged at the mountain? They had this incredible prophetic epiphany of an experience, a theophany as it's called, and they still sinned. Yom Kippur, there's repentance, but there ain't no clouds. The clouds only come when the tabernacle is being built five days later. The tabernacle are a continuation of Sinai. Sinai was great, but after Sinai, you could still sin. It's only if you take Sinai with you and you always have a permanent, so to speak, edifice, a permanent remembrance for that connection that you forge that Sinai, only if you have that in a way that it accompanies you, it's always there. It's not just one experience. It's with you at all times. Only then do you have a guarantee against lapsing back into the sin of the golden calf. What is our guarantee? What is our assurance against golden calf 2.0? It's the tabernacle. It's the mini traveling Sinai that's accompanying us throughout our sojourns and journeys. That is what we're trying to experience here. On Sukkot. The original Yom Kippur, we achieved repentance, but we're just back to where we started. There's the risk of once again falling off the mountaintop, so to speak. We had recidivism. We lapsed into being Egyptians almost with the golden calf. We can have recidivism again. We need something that perpetuates Sinai, and that's the tabernacle. That's the portable Sinai. Now we're, we, we haven't just repented, we've earned, so to speak. We have a guarantee to not repeat the golden calf. And that is what we're trying to experience on the festival of, of Sukkot. It's not just that we repented, we are penitents. And this is perhaps the joy of the festival. Not only do we achieve this incredible level on Yom Kippur, this incredible closeness of being in the presence, so to speak, of the Almighty, but now we are having the means, we are forging the means to perpetuate it forward. Just as the nation built the tabernacle, we are building our sukkah. And just as the tabernacle served as a prophylactic against a second golden calf, we too are building something that will give us an assurance that our level that we achieved, that we acquired on Yom Kippur, will be maintained. What is a sukkah? We described it. It's a temporary dwelling. The roof must be flimsy. If water cannot penetrate your roof, it's not a kosher sukkah. If you're pinning down your roof of your sukkah, it's not kosher. And this is where you're going to live for seven days. Welcome. What is that doing to you? I want to be in my house. I want to be in the air conditioner. 
I want to be in my bed. I want to be in my kitchen. I want to have my appliances. I want to have my climate control. Why am I here? What is this telling me? What is this infusing in me? Number one, reliance on God. You're taking all those things that you have security with. Your comfortable, safe, secure environment. And you're saying, no, 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 my only domicile is God. That's what you're, that's what you're doing. You're exposing yourself to the elements and to all sorts of other dangers. You're vulnerable. But you're going there because you're, you're, you're acknowledging that this relationship we forged on Yom Kippur, it's not just one and done. It's not just smash and grab. It's still present now. Number two. No one would say that your sukkah is a permanent dwelling. No one. But your house, maybe the bank owns most of it. I don't know. But it's still fairly secure. A good hurricane might knock it out. A tornado, if you're in the central part of the country. An earthquake out west. But it's pretty secure. It's pretty permanent. You hear people talking about their permanent home. They want to make a, this is my forever home. That's what they say. The forever home. It ain't forever. I hate to break it to you. I hate to break this bad news. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. It's not forever. In a hundred years from now, you're going to be in a very, very different home. Did I say something that... uh, Disturb you? I apologize. Disturbing news incoming. Your forever home ain't forever. In a hundred years from now, someone else will be living there. And you're going to be someplace else. Maybe 115 years, 150 years from now. Where will you be? That is very much up in the air. That question is very much up in the air. And your assurance that you'll be in a good place is your sukkah. The choices that you make are choices of favoring, so to speak, the sukkah or the house, the temporary world or the permanent world. When you move into the sukkah, you are acknowledging that this is not forever. This is definitely not my forever home. And you spend seven days there, and the objective of that is to remember, even when you move into your more permanent home, it's also not a forever home. And you try to integrate into your behavior choices and deeds that are going to prioritize not your temporary home, but your actual forever home, your actual permanent home. And we have names for those kinds of choices. The definition of a mitzvah is a choice to favor your actual permanent life. And a choice that favors your temporary life to the detriment of your permanent life, we call that a sin. On Yom Kippur, we we achieved a very high level of closeness with the Almighty. 
Now it's time to maintain that. And how do we do that? By expressing, by exhibiting, by manifesting our reliance on God. To remember that we're vulnerable, we're exposed to the elements, but we have God. And to reinforce the notion that nothing on this planet is our permanent home. And we spend seven days like that. And like the tabernacle, that is a portable Sinai. And that's the clouds of glory that we're celebrating. Because it's not just we achieved a high level, let's celebrate. No, no, no. We achieved a high level and we are perpetuating it. We're continuing it. We're taking steps to make sure that we achieved and worked so hard to get the sign that we ascended, so to speak. It's not going to be shattered with another golden calf. So the cause of glory that we're celebrating are the ones that come with the sukkah. And that is what we're trying to achieve. That's one of the main themes of the festival. In the past, we've talked about the wonderful Talmud, about the the Gentiles coming to complain. We want the Torah. We want the mitzvah. We want Olam Abba. We want the afterlife. And God says, okay, here's the sukkah. Could you do it? Only someone who can live with the reality that this world is temporary, only such a person can earn a permanent world elsewhere. If you have a forever house in this world, I'm sorry, you're not a candidate for a forever house anywhere else. And that's why the mitzvah that most embodies the attitude needed to become a citizen of Olamaba, the world to come, is the mitzvah of Sukkah. And of course, this realization will infuse great joy. We have a relationship with God. We have forged a bond with the Almighty. But we also, we also, we also have the means to ensure that this relationship will continue. And we also remember in the back of our heads, actually, we do have a a permanent forever house. And that's way better than what we have here. And that, of course, brings us joy. What depresses us? The notion that we're temporary. The notion that we're just here to amass experiences and, and pleasures and indulgences and that this is all there is. Come on! They might have created everything and all the cosmos and such a rich thing called a human. All for this? Really? Really? This is what it's all... Of course not. This is the corridor. This is the antechamber. And this is nothing. You're... Permanence here is it's just the sukkah. It's just it's not permanent at all, I assure you. And there's another idea. And we, we will recap all the ideas so you can keep track of all seven. At the celebration of the Simcha Space Hashueva, the, the joy of the drawing, the drawing of the water, the drawing of the prophecy, everyone would highlight their unique standing, those who were forever righteous, the pristinely righteous from their youth, they would say, praiseworthy is our youth. We're not embarrassed of it now. 
And the Bali Tshuva, the penitents, they would say, praiseworthy is our current time because we have rectified, we have atoned for a more troubled youth. And then they sang together. Praiseworthy is he who has never sinned. But whoever did sin, return, repent, and you will be forgiven. It's been a couple days since Yom Kippur. And everyone can look back and reflect on what a gift the Almighty has given us. The celebration, or at least part of it, at this this whole week-long festivities, they're celebrating the concept of repentance. No matter what, you can still make something of yourself. Return, repent, and you'll be forgiven. No matter what, you could still fix yourself. You could still achieve the great accomplishments and standing and stature that the Almighty created you for. No matter where you are, no matter how far you may be from your ultimate self, you may not be worthy of participating in the center, juggling, playing the music, singing, dancing. You may be a spectator. But there is still a path, there's still a plan for you to become deserving to participate in the joy. You could be a participant in these celebrations. The possibility still exists. It's in your hand. You are not condemned to remain a spectator at this joyous celebration or at life. You are not condemned to remain a sinner. You are not condemned to forever have unrealized potential. That can yet be actualized. It's not too late. It's still attainable. We're not doomed. We're not trapped in the present. We can still do it. It's not too late. If you realize that, there's still hope yet. Nothing will infuse you with more joy. And finally, this is the festival of joy. What about this festival begets joy? So the Ramam says, well, the whole festival. Others, Rashi, for example, they highlight the fact that there is a special mitzvah known as the, the libation of the water. So you, they draw the water and they pour the water in the temple and the altar. And this is a special mitzvah done, done only, only on the festival of Sukkot. It's not explicit in the Torah, but it is hinted to in the Torah. And this, this is really where the joy resides, so to speak, on this festival. Now, I saw an amazing idea, but I have to tell you it's a Hasidic idea. So if you don't know what a Hasidic idea is, this is a, this is a prime example of what a Hasidic idea sounds like. Comes courtesy of the great Hasidic master, I believe Yitzchak of Bardichev. So if that name means not means nothing to you, one of the absolute giants of the Hasidic movement. He quotes the Talmud. The Talmud says, wait a minute. This festival and this joy of the festival 
You're drawing. You're drawing water, but you're also drawing prophecy. How are you drawing prophecy? How does that work? You're drawing water, but you're also drawing prophecy? It's like a pail that you put down the well. And you get the water. I get it. You need the water for the libations. What does it have to do with prophecy? So he tells us there is a ubiquitous custom on Rosh Hashanah to do the tashlich. Now, what does tashlich mean? Tashlich means to throw, to cast away. Cast away in the sea all your sins. There's a special prayer that we say when you're supposed to go to the water, ideally, and cast away, cast off your sins into the water. There's a corruption of this custom where people take bread and throw it into the water. That's not the way you're supposed to do it. You're supposed to throw your sins into the water, not your bread. And it's based on the verse. The verse tells us, Tashlech, you should throw away, cast away your sins into the sea. So what happened to all our sins? So one of the things we're trying to do is to get rid of them, is to throw them away. But then there's a festival of repentance. Repentance. And repentance comes in two flavors. You have repentance out of fear of God. And what that does, it takes the sins, even though though they may have been willful, wanton crimes against God, it transforms them. And now they're accidents. And for an accident, well, you're not liable. That's one flavor of repentance. But there's a second flavor Repentance, not out of fear, but out of love. And that, that doesn't just take a sin that was willful and turn it into being like an accident that you cannot be blamed for. It takes the sin and turns it into a mitzvah. Thus tells us the Talmud, Book of Yoma, on page 86b. So we took all the sins and we threw them into the water. And then we have Yom Kippur. And we realize, oh no. With our repentance out of love on Yom Kippur, all those sins can now redound to our benefit and be turned into mitzvos. We want to get them back. So we go to the water and we draw them out of the, we draw the water. But what we're trying to draw, or the, the theory, the, the idea, we're trying to draw those sins, so to speak, back. We want to reclaim those sins so that way, that way we can now transform them into mitzvahs. And perhaps this is why the festival of, of circus is a time of joy, of unbridled, unending joy. There's no joy like the fact that all those sins that I wanted nothing to do with, I wanted to, to disown, so to speak, They were inhibiting. My past was inhibiting my present. And now I can find a way to actually repurpose and refashion them into something which is actually beneficial. Draw the water and draw the prophecy because all those sins are actually going to ultimately redound to our benefit and help advance us yet further. There's joy in this festival.
of course, we are commanded to be joyous and to be only exclusively joyous for seven days. The Gona Vilna famously said, the hardest mitzvah in the Torah to fulfill is to be joyous for all the days of the festival. Because the verse says, you should be only joyous. You cannot be sad for even a moment or else you're not fulfilling the mitzvah. And therefore, for seven days, don't check your stocks. Don't check the news. In Houston, don't check the temperature. You have to be only, only exclusively joyous. And in the temple, there was joy, unparalleled joy. If you never saw this joy, you never saw any joy in your life. Day and night, nonstop. You want a nap? Take Doze off on the person dancing next to you. And even today, we're supposed to be as joyous as possible. And if we're joyous on this festival, we will be joyous throughout the year. It's both a commandment and a promise. And the roots of this joy go very deep. And we learned a lot of reasons. Seven. One each for the seven days of Sukkot, of Sukkot. We start off with the basic idea. And the basic idea is that joy is a basic need. There is a need for periodic joy. It's not a luxury. It's a necessity. And the Almighty, in His benevolence, gave us a mitzvah for something that we would regardless need. And that is something to celebrate. We could celebrate the fact that even those things that we would do anyhow can be a mitzvah that will give us eternal life and vitality. Idea number two is that the the sukkah corresponds to the clouds of glory, and that was extra. That was unnecessary. The manna we needed, the water we needed, and therefore we don't celebrate that. The clouds, they were a sign of, an undeniable sign of divine love. And how much do we have to be grateful for? How much does the Almighty give us more than we need? More than what's absolutely necessary? This is a time to focus on the acts of love that the Almighty directs our way. Idea number three, on the heels of Yom, Yom Kippur. How can you be anything but exuberantly joyous? You've been freed from the clutches of the Sahara. You've been freed from sin and from its horrific consequences. When you realize how lucky, how fortunate you are, nothing but joy emerges. I did number four. The clouds of glory, they symbolize closeness after the sin. The tabernacle, that's a perpetuation of Sinai. And Sukkot is the rendering permanent of what we accomplished on Yom Kippur. We're taking the closeness that we achieved on Yom Kippur and we are perpetuating it. We're doing that a la the tabernacle. Not only do we have forgiveness, not only do we have closeness, but we have almost an insurance plan that it will remain as such. Idea number five, the sukkah. It's a tabernacle, Sinai-like edifice. It is a place where you have nothing else to rely upon besides for God. It reminds us of our temporality. 
it reminds us that our true forever home is not here. And that is something to celebrate. The prayers, the songs, the praises during the celebrations in the temple give us yet another reason to be joyous. There's nothing as joyous as recognizing that so long as you are alive, you are still a a player. You can still become righteous. If you sinned, repent, and you will be forgiven. And finally, there's this joy when we realize the notion of repentance out of love. Those sins that we casted away into the water in Rosh Hashanah, we want them back because we want to reclaim them and repurpose them as mitzvahs. This is the time of joy. This is the days of joy. This is the festival of joy. May we all merit to experience the joy on the festival of Sukkot, of Sukkot. And of course, may we all merit to witness, please God, in our days, the unparalleled joy of this festival in the temple. May it be speedily rebuilt. Of course, my email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. I want to hear your questions, your comments, and of course, your very valuable and very appreciated feedback.